For as long as we've had aristocrats, we've had people pretending to be them. In 1495, a fake Duke of York led a very real rebellion. Countess Anastasia, the Romanoff heiress, has been brought back from the dead I don't know how many times. And every time, someone believed it was really her. In recent years, we've had a Clark Rockefeller, supposed heir to the Rockefeller fortune, but actually a German immigrant, now serving a long prison sentence for murder. All these royal imposters shared an ability to dazzle everyone they met with their supposed access to wealth and power. And we fall for them time and time again. I'm Maria Konnikova, and this is The Grift. Today, I want to try something a little different and tell you a story from the past. This story fascinates me, not only because it's about one of the best aristocratic scam artists ever to live, it also tells us about one of the best disguises a con artist can hope for, being female. Cassie Chadwick was not an attractive woman. Thin lips, unsmiling mouth, reticent. But the many men she held in her sway believed she must have had hypnotic power. Perhaps it lay in her deep, magnetic eyes, the one trait of hers people remembered. How else to explain how an uneducated girl from nowhere was able to deceive men of the highest social breeding into giving her millions upon millions of dollars? How else to explain how someone with no financial background could operate what amounted to a Ponzi scheme and keep getting away with it over and over and over? It's the second part of the 19th century. America is just coming out of the Civil War, and business is starting to boom. Railroads are connecting the remote parts of the country, and expansion is on everyone's mind. Real estate expansion, industrial expansion, business opportunities. The country is being transformed from an agrarian bounty to an industrial powerhouse. Between the end of Reconstruction and the Great Panic of 1893, the economy will nearly double in size and fortunes are being made. In New York City, lavish parties become the theme du jour. One time, a certain Mrs. Stuyvesant Fish throws an elaborate affair at one of the chicest restaurants in town. The occasion? Her dog. The guest of honor arrives wearing a diamond collar. And of course, there are fortunes of the more serious variety. There's John D. Rockefeller, the ruler of all things oil. There's Andrew Carnegie, the ruler of all things steel. Later, they'll be known as the robber barons, because even as some fortunes are being made, others are being lost. Farmers are being displaced. Conditions in the newly prosperous factories are far from ideal. People are feeling the effects of quick, opportunistic, unprecedented expansion and they're turning to alternate ways of explaining the world. Like hypnotism, it's all the rage. It can account for everything. 
from bankruptcy to adultery to all matters of sin. Hypnotism is like the Salem witch of the late 1900s. If something goes wrong, a hypnotist must surely be behind it. This is the age into which Cassie Chadwick is born. Except her real name is Elizabeth Bigley. She's known as Betty. Betty is the fifth of eight children, and she comes from a small farm in Ontario, Canada, far removed from the glamour of the times. When Betty is still quite small, she falls ill and loses hearing in one ear. She develops a speech impediment. She speaks rarely. She turns inwards. When she starts school, her classmates aren't particularly fond of her. They find her strange. And so she retreats further and further into herself, her own world, her own private thoughts and dreams. It's like she's hypnotizing herself, her sister later says, like she goes into a trance of her very own. No one expects this quiet child to do anything out of the ordinary. And so it's a bit of a shock when, at the ripe age of 13, Betty is arrested. You see, she'd written a letter saying that her rich uncle had died and left her a small inheritance. The letter wasn't like those fake doctor's notes most children try to cobble together for their teachers. For months, if not years, before executing her scheme, Betty had been practicing forging signatures and handwriting. It was her favorite hobby. Maybe it's because she felt ignored as Betty. A middle child, not particularly popular, a stranger in her hometown, a loner. Maybe she thought that if she could become someone else, someone with a better pedigree, a better name, a more vaunted history, she would feel more like somebody. Whatever it was, she had made an art out of falsification, as best she could for a 13-year-old. She'd studied all the curlicues of the gentrified set, and she could hold her own. For the final flourish of this particular escapade, Betty steals some high-end stationery. The end result, beautiful writing on lavish paper, fools a local bank into lending her checks against her inheritance. These she promptly puts into motion. She writes a series of bad checks around Woodstock, Ontario, to buy herself some pretty things. Betty is soon caught and booked for forgery. But the court doesn't end up charging her. It finds her mentally unstable and releases her to her family. She receives a stern warning not to do it again. Betty is never one for stern warnings. A few years later, older and perhaps wiser, she takes her fake inheritance up a notch. She buys the nicest stationery she can find. She invents a law firm in London, Ontario, to which the stationery will belong. And she once more informs herself of a tidy inheritance. $15,000. Well, what wonderful fortune. She promptly prints herself social calling cards with the following text. Miss Bigley, heiress to $15,000 in case there were any doubt. And then she goes to town. Quite literally, she goes to town and into the best stores. And there she picks out the best items. 
She then writes a check for each item, which is a bit more than the item is worth. It's a common practice at the time, and the store gives the customer the difference. Basically, this is your early version of debit card cashback. Except unlike debit cards, checks have to clear. And Betty's evidently will not. But no one doubts her. Such a refined young woman, picking out the best, and with social cards to boot. Who in the world would ever fake something like that? Alas, the scheme cannot last forever. But just as her debts are coming due, Betty has an actual windfall. Her older sister gets married. And Betty, being Betty, convinces her sister to let her come and live with the newlyweds, at least until she gets on her feet. As luck would have it, the sister's new abode is in a new country, the United States. Betty moves to Cleveland, Ohio. She tells her sister she is busy looking for a job to get settled on her own. But really, while the newlyweds go to work every day, she is hatching her next scheme. She carefully inventories everything in the house. All of those wedding gifts, all of that starter newlywed furniture, and she uses it as collateral for a loan. Her scheme is soon discovered, and Betty is kicked to the curb. But she's Betty, and she's no longer 13. She's 26. Prime time for a scheme of the next level, marriage. She soon sets her eye on her next victim, a local doctor, Wallace Springsteen. He is mesmerized, hypnotized, some would say, by those eyes of hers. In December 1883, shortly after they meet, they marry. And the local newspaper, of course, prints a wedding announcement. Betty isn't particularly fond of the doctor. That wedding announcement was actually her end goal. She needs the creditors to know someone else has now assumed her debts. And so they learn. And so they come knocking. The good doctor is shocked that his wife has racked up such horrendous credit. But he pays. He doesn't want his own reputation tarnished. He's a prominent man, after all, and the city is not so big that he can hide. They separate 12 days after they wed. Betty's debts paid in full. Betty's done with Cleveland, at least for the moment. And she's done with being Betty. It wasn't quite as successful as she'd hoped. She's got the enraged doctor, the disappointed sister, the angry brother-in-law. She needs to clear the air. It's time to try her hand at something new. She becomes Madame Marie Rosa, a traveling clairvoyant and hypnotist. Marie is in turns a poor nobody and a poor somebody. In one town, she claims herself as the niece of William Tecumseh Sherman, the Civil War general. She then falls violently ill. She's perfected the trick of pricking her gums to make herself bleed from the mouth, simulating a hemorrhage, and garners so much sympathy that the townspeople gather funds to send her back to Cleveland. When they ask for repayment a few weeks later, they are greeted by sad news. Poor Marie Rosa, she has passed. The letter telling them of this awful loss, of course, is written by the lady herself. By this time, faking correspondence is second nature. Marie moves around the state, 
In Trumbull County, Ohio, she catches a second husband, a local farmer, John Scott. That marriage fails. Marie is not cut out for the farming life. But the third marriage to C.L. Hoover proves better. He's a businessman. She likes business. It means money. They have a son. She ships him off to Canada to her parents. Children don't fit into her plans. And then Mr. Hoover dies. He leaves Marie 50 grand, the only real inheritance she will ever have. But she's not one to settle for real money when there's more money of the illegitimate kind to be had. Plus, to be honest, she enjoys the hypnotism profession just a bit too much to leave it behind. There's money to be made from clairvoyance. So she moves to Toledo and rebrands herself Madame Lydia de Verre. At 31 years old, she is beyond successful. Her fortune-telling clients can't get enough. They're hypnotized, they'll later say under oath. One client, Joseph Lamb, pays her a 10 grand retainer to be his financial advisor. And she promptly does what she does best. She forges a promissory note for thousands of dollars, and she asks Lamb to cash it for her. It's a variation on the same theme she's been playing at since her earliest teens. Fake money, fake papers, a fake reputation, and very real victims. She just scales up the stakes each time, elaborating on a scheme that has served her often and well. Joseph Lamb's reputation is golden. He has no problems cashing the promissory notes that his financial advisor has so expertly crafted. Several more notes follow for a total of 40 grand in a matter of days. The banks, of course, soon cry foul, and poor Joseph is arrested. Luckily, he's acquitted. He's the hypnotist's victim, the court rules. She, on the other hand, doesn't fare as well. She is sentenced to nine and a half years in an Ohio state prison. Three and a half years later, though, the state governor, William McKinley, the same McKinley who will go on to become president, pardons her, and she's released. She's been a model prisoner, after all. She's even told the fortunes of the warden. And she's written letter after letter to the parole board, all in the most eloquent of styles. She is remorseful, she pleads. She has changed. But has she changed? Take a guess. We'll find out after the break. When we left our heroine, she was just released from prison. Her time there becomes a chance for a more permanent transformation. Betty turned Marie turned Lydia, now decides to become Cassie. And Cassie is the name she will use until the end of her life. For now, she will be Cassie L. Hoover, taking the last name of her deceased husband. And as Cassie Hoover, she returns at last to Cleveland. It's been long enough, she feels, and the air has cleared. There, she starts her next scheme, a brothel on the west side of town. Cassie lists it as a boarding house for single women. It's quite successful. And soon after, in 1897, when Cassie is 40 years old, she meets a wealthy doctor. Perhaps, though it's never clear, he was one of her special clients. 
he'll only ever admit to a compassionate massage at her hands. He's suffering from rheumatism, you know. His name is Leroy Chadwick. He's a member of one of Cleveland's oldest families. He is wealthy. And the notorious Cassie Chadwick is born. It happens like this. First, Cassie decides to ingratiate herself to the high society from which she's been excluded. She redecorates Dr. Chadwick's house with things like a $9,000 pipe organ and a chair that plays music whenever you sit on it. She orders herself custom dresses from New York. She runs up jewelry bills valued at close to a hundred grand. She buys eight pianos as Christmas presents to her friends. That is, the people who simply won't accept her. But none of it seems like enough. She's a newcomer. It seems like she isn't trusted by her prominent neighbors. People like the U.S. Senator Marcus Hanna and John Hay, once upon a time, Abraham Lincoln's private secretary. And so, Cassie devises her most brilliant scheme of all. Her crowning achievement, if you will, and a model for many a grifter to come. How to make an aristocratic claim look not only believable, but likely. And how to make that claim spread like wildfire without ever mentioning it yourself. It's the spring of 1902. Cassie Chadwick boards a train from Cleveland to New York City. From the station, she takes a handsome cab to the posh Holland House Hotel. And so we find ourselves in the lobby on the corner of 5th Avenue and 30th Street. The floors are sienna marble. The walls are gilded. Downstairs is a wine cellar housing over a third of a million dollars worth of wine. In other words, Cassie is in her element. She's likely wearing one of her favorite gowns, an elaborately embroidered form-fitting top, sleeves modestly covering her arms, a swooping floor-length skirt, pleated, with a pronounced train, one made for riding in carriages, not walking on sidewalks. The kind of dress that screams of servants to lace and unlace. The kind of dress that shows you are a woman to be reckoned with. Cassie is waiting for a very specific person. After a while, she spots him across the lobby. She positions herself strategically. This is meant to look like an absolutely chance encounter. As he passes, she grazes his arm. She turns and marvels at the lovely coincidence. Who is it but her current husband, Leroy Chadwick's old lawyer friend, James Dillon? How funny running into him here. A familiar face amidst a sea of New York strangers. Actually, what wonderful good fortune this is. Would he mind chaperoning her to her father's house? She is, after all, a frightened woman, traveling alone in a crowded city. Mr. Dillon, of course, agrees. He hails a handsome cab. Cassie leans over and tells the driver their destination. 2 East 91st Street. That's 91st and 5th Avenue. When they arrive, Dillon is momentarily floored. You see, he recognizes this house. 
Everyone would. It's the famed four-story mansion that belongs to none other than Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnate, one of the so-called robber barons of the Gilded Age. He is among the wealthiest men, if not the wealthiest man, in the country. Dylan stares at Cassie in disbelief. Surely, surely this isn't her father's house. One moment, Cassie tells him, would he mind waiting while she quickly runs in? And so he waits, and Cassie rings the doorbell. She is greeted by the butler. Could she please see the head housekeeper, she inquires. Why, certainly. Cassie waits in the vestibule. It's all very Downton Abbey. The housekeeper arrives, and Cassie explains the purpose of her visit. She is looking to hire a maid. One of the maid's references is the Carnegie family. What can the housekeeper tell her about a certain Hilda Schmidt? She's so sorry, the housekeeper informs Cassie, but no one by that name has ever worked here. Is she absolutely certain Cassie persists? She gives a minute description of Hilda, complete with height, eye color, style of dress, the works. No, the housekeeper insists, this person never worked for the Carnegie household. Cassie thanks her profusely and apologizes for her time. She compliments her on the beauty and cleanliness of the foyer. Half an hour later, she takes her leave. On her way out the door, Cassie appears to put a brown envelope into her coat, in view, of course, of the waiting carriage. When she hops in, James Dillon is visibly shaken. Who exactly is her father, he manages to ask. Shh! Cassie swears him to silence. And then she discloses her big, dark secret. She is Andrew Carnegie's illegitimate daughter. She shows him the envelope. Inside, he sees promissory notes signed by the mogul himself, one for a quarter of a million, one for half. Cassie explains that Daddy Dearest feels so very awfully guilty for his youthful indiscretion and provides her with large sums of cash to keep her happy. When he dies, she stands to inherit an amount that will make these notes seem paltry in comparison. Please, don't tell a soul, Cassie begs again. And of course, Dylan promises he won't. And of course, he promptly whispers about the illegitimate connection all over town, just as Cassie knew he would. Cassie returns to Cleveland in triumph. She is no longer playing Cassie Chadwick. She is Cassie Chadwick, illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. She isn't a nobody. She's as somebody as they come. The papers quickly dub her Queen of Ohio. The name brings more than social acceptance. Remember all of those outrageous purchases she had been making for the house and herself? Doctors aren't that wealthy. Her husband couldn't actually afford all of that. But Cassie devises an ingenious scheme, a Ponzi with a social pedigree. She takes out loans from multiple banks, using her famous father's reputation and fake promissory notes, and uses each subsequent loan to pay for the preceding ones. 
It's like opening credit card after credit card and using the new cards to pay off the balance of the old ones. Except the lender is sure that every last cent is guaranteed. Because, hell, this is the daughter of the wealthiest man in the nation, after all. She is riding high. The best clothing. Diamonds. A strand of pearls valued at 40 grand. But it never seems like enough. People are nice to her, to be sure. But it seems she must do more and more to be truly accepted. And so she continues spending. And when her husband complains, she doubles down. So convincing is Cassie's Carnegie story that people start writing her personal loans. The president of Citizens National Bank lends her a hundred grand from his own funds. An investment banker from Boston, Herbert Newton, loans her even more. They meet through one of the most elite churches in the area, Euclid Avenue Baptist, and he's only too happy to help out. The bankers, everyone is certain they will be paid off multifold when this lovely heiress receives her inheritance. They know they will be paid, that is, until months turn to years. Herbert Newton has had enough by November 1904, two years after Cassie was outed as Carnegie's heir. Newton is unhypnotized, shall we say. He files a federal lawsuit against Cassie. And even here, Cassie does not disappoint. She denies all charges. And she also denies that she has ever claimed any relation to Andrew Carnegie. Here's her sworn testimony. It has been said repeatedly that I had asserted that Andrew Carnegie was my father. I deny that, and I deny it absolutely. Five months later, in March 1905, Cassie is found guilty of conspiracy to defraud a national bank. She is sentenced to 10 years in prison. It's the trial of the decade. By some estimates, she has defrauded her victims by what in today's money would be almost $20 million. But it was something else that made this the trial of the decade. Because who attends the sentencing but her father, Andrew Carnegie himself? When he sees his so-called daughter's so-called promissory notes, he bursts out laughing, according to contemporary newspaper accounts. He points out spelling and punctuation errors, hardly the signature of a mogul of his pedigree. If anyone had seen this paper and then really believed that I had drawn it up and signed it, I could hardly have been flattered. Why, I have not signed a note in the last 30 years. Had they confronted him way back when, he says, none of this would have happened. But no one confronted him. Even if they had, and he denied the whole thing, it may have perversely lent even more credibility to Cassie's story. Of course the prominent mogul would deny having an illegitimate daughter. It's quite brilliant, really. The extent of Cassie's brazenness and appeal knows few bounds. Even in prison, no one can quite believe that she's a fraud. She's allowed things no prisoner is. Her own custom dresses, furniture, furs, visitors. One of those visitors is a bank president whose fortunes she had previously ruined. I'm not so sure yet you're a fraud, he tells her. 
When she dies, a few years into her prison sentence, there are still those who maintain that she was not as bad as all that. Perhaps it's because Cassie is a woman, and women find themselves at a strange intersection when it comes to fraud. On the one hand, they are routinely underestimated. No woman could be so clever as to come up with such a complex deception. Surely it must be true, because her feeble little mind could never make such a story up. On the other hand, they are placed on a bit of a feminine pedestal. No woman would make something like that up. Women are the gentle sex. They comply. They don't craft elaborate ruses. Certainly not elaborate financial scams. And perhaps it's something that transcends gender. Something about the very nature of the scheme Cassie chose to pull off. Andrew Carnegie. Who wouldn't want to befriend the daughter, even illegitimate, of one of the most powerful men in the world? She made herself into the absolute center of attention. And while it ended up being her downfall, it was also the key to her success. Never underestimate the human desire to be associated with the exceptional, the powerful, the elite. There's a bit of a star stalker in all of us. We hope the elite walk among us. We hope their eliteness will rub off, if only a bit. We dare not question. And the grifter lives to grift another day. The Grift is produced by Odelia Rubin, Shoshi Shmulevitz, and Jacob Smith. Our editor is Julia Barton, and our fact-checker is Jen Schwartz. Ben Levin composed our music. Special thanks to the Panoply management team, Mia LaBelle, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. If you liked this episode, you can help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing in iTunes. 